Thank you all for being with us today at River Oaks. It is so great to have you here. It's an exciting time in the life of our church. Uh, almost every week, something on the property or in the building is changing as our uh, updates are being done and expansion is underway. Uh, in just a few weeks, the Discipleship Center uh, to my right, the two-story building that will connect with the sanctuary hall hallway here, will be done. And for the first time, we'll have quite a number of classrooms uh, for adult space. We've had space for children and youth, but not for adults. So we're super excited about that. And it's all part of a vision to which we believe the Lord has called us. Our 2025 vision is about a page and a half uh, that you can read on our website. But at the heart of this is our mission. And you can see it in a fairly succinct statement on the front of your bulletin, right under the logo, building followers of Jesus who are sent to reach others. It's an interesting thing to read through the Gospels and see how Jesus developed his followers. He called them to be with them. He taught them by word and example. But eventually, he sent them out and said, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. So to be a follower of Jesus is really to be a sent person. As we grow in our faith, as we grow in discipleship or spiritual formation, as we sometimes call it, the end result should be taking the love of Jesus and the truth of Jesus to the hurting world outside our doors. And that's what our 2025 vision is all about. And we think the Discipleship Center is going to be a big help in serving that particular vision. We are seeing um, a number of new people coming to our church in these last few weeks. Is, uh, whether it has anything to do with its expansion or not, I don't know, but it seems the Lord is sending us more people. <clears throat> As a result, we're seeing a lot of new children <clears throat> in Noah's Ark and Kitzrock. So if you're looking for a great, great ministry, one of the most important ministries in the church, the ministry to children, uh, we would invite you to explore that. You could write it on your hand here card or just simply contact us. I do want to let you know if you work with children here, you've got to complete a thorough uh, background check because the security of our kids is our first concern. But if you feel a calling and understand the importance of teaching and leading children, we would invite your involvement in that really important part of our vision. Well, this morning, <clears throat> we continue our study of the short New Testament book of James. We called this series True Faith Is because James is all about how genuine, real, truth face faith should be expressed. And I emphasize true faith because James says faith without works is really no faith at all. Faith without works is dead. James brings a very strong corrective to nominal Christianity. That is someone who might say, well, yeah, I believe in God. I'm a Christian. I prayed a prayer one time, but then lives like the devil with absolutely no fruit. I think James would say to a person in that situation, faith without works is dead. James comes on very strongly in this short book. In this letter that he has written, he asks a lot of probing questions. You may have noticed that. He's been reading through the book of James. In James chapter 2 and verse 14, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? 
when we get to our chapter today, chapter 4 of James, he begins the chapter, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at work within you? And then in verse 4, he asks a really strong question. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Wow. He goes on to say, <clears throat> therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, quote, he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us? I'd like to focus on that statement this morning as we talk about the, the jealous love of God. Because God's jealous love for the full devotion of his people is at the heart of these questions he is asking and these commands that he is giving. All of the directives, the commands in the book of James are not about just trying to get a people to line up with a bunch of rules. They're about the jealous love of God and his desire for the full devotion of his people. Now, the first question someone may have is, it, is, is it even right to think that God would be jealous? I think it is right because God's jealousy is not like sinful human jealousy. I think we could define God's jealousy in the way you see on the screen as a holy and a pure longing for the full devotion of his people. In the book of Exodus chapter 20, we have the record of uh, God giving his Ten Commandments to Moses for his people. And the chapter begins with God saying, I'm the Lord your God who called you out of the, the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and you'll see the scripture there now, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God's jealousy is a holy and pure longing for the full devotion of his people. He does not leave room for idols in the lives of his people. In Exodus 34, we read these words, take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim. Asherim pole was a place for worshiping an idol. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods, you shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. Wow, that's pretty strong language. In Scripture, God's love for his people is often depicted as marriage. That's why the Apostle Paul in his longest teaching on marriage says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, gave himself for the church. At the end of the New Testament, the book of Revelation, we see the holy city coming down like a, a, a bride prepared for her 
husband. And so this language of, of marriage around God's relationship with his people uh, causes uh, the Lord to speak very, very strongly of idolatry as spiritual adultery. Now, this idea of divine jealousy is picked up by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 when he's writing to the church at Corinth and says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Again, we see the image of, of marriage here. The Apostle Paul expressing God's jealousy, a holy divine jealousy for the uh, full devotion of his people. I betrothed you to one husband. Now, just with this background, that I think we can better understand this passage in James, where James actually charges people with spiritual adultery. And I'll read it again. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scriptures says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell within us? Now, you may have a question in your mind about this loving the world. Because we all know that John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That verse in John is speaking of the people in the world. God does love the people in the world. That's why he sent Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for our sins that we might be forgiven and reconciled to him. But elsewhere, the Apostle Paul refers to Satan as the little g God of this world. And the Apostle John says, for all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. James is using the word world in that sense. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride in possessions that one has. Think of it as the spirit of the world, the spirit that's at work in the world around us. And James, much like an Old Testament prophet calling God's people away from the worship of idols because of God's holy jealousy, is calling Christians away from love for this world and its system, the lust of the eyes, the, the pride of life, pride in our possessions. And James is saying friendship with the world is enmity with God. And it is with this background of holy jealousy, God's desire for the full devotion of his people, that James, in this section of scripture, calls us to live in a certain way. He calls us to live, number one, with the meekness of wisdom. Maddie read these words a moment ago in James 3, 13 to 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy, that's human jealousy, not divine jealousy. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Wow, those are strong words. If we're living with self-centered ambition, bitter jealousy in our hearts, are we opening 
our lives from to influences that are evil. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is purse pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. This earthly wisdom that James calls unspiritual and demonic, we see all around us. And it leads to division and disorder in a nation, sometimes in churches, sometimes in families, sometimes in marriages, where there is self-centered pride and the absence of godly wisdom, which is expressed in meekness. And by the way, meekness is not weakness. It is spiritual strength. When there's a lack of that, there is disorder and division. Paul David Tripp is a writer who um, is also a counselor. And on the screen, he writes about his experience in counseling married couples who are at a point of crisis in their marriages. And he writes, I've seen this operate so powerfully in married couples that it locks their marriages in a permanent state of paralysis that precludes any hope of real lasting change. The husband comes to counseling with a long list of his wife's sins, weaknesses, and failures, but with little awareness or concern for his own. His wife comes armed with a detailed list of her husband's wrongs, but with little reference to her own. When I ask the husband what is wrong with his marriage, he doesn't talk about himself, he talks about his wife. And when I ask the wife what is wrong, she doesn't talk about herself, she talks about her husband. There's not the meekness, the humility that is born of true godly wisdom. How is it possible to have two utterly righteous people in a marriage that is broken and dysfunctional? Be honest right here, right now as you're reading this devotion. Whose sin bugs you more, your own or that of someone near you? Who are you desperate to see change, you or someone else in your life? The question James would raise is, which kind of wisdom will you live by in your home, in your family relationships, your extended family? Which kind of wisdom will you live by in your, in your church, your friendships? That which is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. James says it leads to disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. We take care in life to guard our homes from evil things entering in. We put screens on our windows and locks on our doors. I wonder how cautious we are to guard our souls from these things entering in. Selfish ambition, self-centeredness, bitter jealousy. My wife and I had uh, have an interesting experience about uh, two weeks ago, she's in this service. I'm going to tell a little differently from the way I told it in the first service. So, um, seriously though, almost two weeks ago, I guess Monday, well, 10, 12 days ago, I got home from work at the church. We don't live far from here, just around the corner. 
and always open up the back of my Honda Pilot, open the garage door, open the back of it, and get out my, you know, my laptop and my, my bag. And um, I had the, the top of my Honda open and standing right under, you know, the garage door opening. And as I turned to our right, um, staring me right in the face, right at eye level, well, you'll see it on the screen. My wife took a picture. It was this quite large, fortunately black snake. Now, I don't have a real, you know, phobia of snakes or anything like that, but I, I didn't want to have one in the garage. And this one was all wrapped around the, the, the frame the garage door runs on. So I immediately called my wife and I said... <laughs> I said, dear, you need to come down and take care of something down here. <laughs> no, she was the one with the camera taking the picture. And so I got one of these long-handled grabber things. Have you seen that? You get a handle, you can pick stuff up with. And I, I tried. I didn't, of course, we didn't want to harm the snake. We didn't want to kill the snake. Black snakes are good. They're helpful. You know, they eat rodents and all. Tried to get this thing. It was wrapped around there, and it was strong and tight. I could not get it down. Best says, I, I got a solution. Let me cut, cut the garage door on loose. And I said, well, wait a minute. As soon as she did, that thing shot right up the wall into the insulation. Our attic has insulation, and we could not find it. We looked and looked and probed and could not, could not find that thing. So I called my uh, a longtime uh, friend, uh, pest control guy. He had just been to our house, I think, that morning and said, uh, Jim, what do you recommend? And he says, well, some people say mothballs, but I think it's an old wife's, wife's tale. So we tried everything. And um, he said, just leave the door open. It'll go out. We left the garage doors open for the rest, rest of the evening and a couple hours and figured it was gone. And uh, saw no more evidence of it for a week or two. He said, well, that's, that's good. Although my wife did want to sleep that night with all the doors to the house closed, going all the way up to the, the bedroom. So... Jim, my, the, when I called about the pest control, he said, David, you know there's got to be a sermon illustration in this somewhere. I said, well, I'm, I'm not sure what it is, but we'll keep our garage doors closed. And, and I thought that was the end of the story. Well, uh, Beth and I were out of town last week, and so we got back uh, Friday. And yesterday, I was in our basement working on this sermon, actually, going over a little bit. And she goes out to her car and She's going to go to the grocery store or something. And, and she calls me out there says, why is all this insulation coming down from the garage? Other side of the garage, other half the garage. And I said, well, I don't know. And the little pieces of wire that hold up insulation, a couple have fallen out. I said, well, that's the only reason it's, it's down there. And she said, well, can you put it back? I said, well, sure. I'll get a ladder. And I started putting the insulation, the little wire things back in the garage. It's not, that's, I can do that. That's not hard to do. And all of a sudden, well, she took another picture. This is two weeks after the first picture. It's right where my hand was. And I said, uh-oh. We thought it was gone. Now, this is not a small snake. This is pretty, pretty good size. And so as I tried to get it down this time, my wife said, I think you just need to reach in there and grab it. So <laughs> I, I, don't, I said, I think you need to go in the house and pray and let me see <laughs> The Lord won't help me work this out. And long story short, that thing did not want to leave. It did not want to leave. And um, we finally got it pulled out, fell out, 
and the garage door was closed. So I said, open that door. So this thing fought me to get back in the house. I'm telling you what, this thing tried to get around me to get back in our garage, and it, it was a battle in the yard, and finally I'm out in the yard. It's starting to rain. I, I said, bring me a shovel, not to kill it, but to scoop it up with one hand and the grabber in the other, and it kept falling off, and I said, I hope our next-door neighbors are not watching me out here. I look like an idiot getting that thing down to the creek. Praise the Lord. We think it's gone for good, and hopefully we'll not come back. I'm not sure if that really has relationship to the message this morning. My pest control guy told me it was a good sermon illustration. But in, the fact of the matter is, we do go to great lengths to keep things out of our physical home that we do not want there. We put screens on our windows and locks on our doors, and we keep our garage doors down to keep things out we don't want in our homes. But I do wonder if we are nearly as vigilant to keep things out of our souls that we do not want in our souls. Things like bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, love of the world in its ways and its systems, the lust of the flesh, the pride that comes with possessions. These are things that James says we should guard against because where they exist, there is an earthly wisdom that is unspiritual and of the devil, demonic. And he calls us to live a different way, to live in the meekness of wisdom. Because the wisdom that comes down from heaven is, first of all, pure, peace-loving, gentle, submissive, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits. God in his jealous love is calling us to this type of a way of, of life and of relating to one another and to the world around us. God's jealous love also calls us to live with a joy of holy desire. Now we get back to our central passage again where James says, <clears throat> what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? He sounds like an Old Testament prophet. But remember what's behind this. It's the holy love of God, the jealous love of God, a holy and pure longing for the, the full devotion of his people not sharing the lordship of Jesus with any idols. Do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he made to dwell within us? How do you love God and not the world? It's a struggle. And I don't think it's something that, that comes to our lives by the sheer force of human willpower. I think it comes through the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit because it is possible for us to walk with the Lord in such a way that our love for Him begins to displace love for lesser things. Divine displacement. When we realize that the greatest joy in life, the greatest pleasure in life, is really found in God. It begins by receiving his outpoured grace is offered to us through Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. 
there Jesus became the sin bearer for us. He bore our sins, the Bible says, in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Through Jesus, we're brought into a relationship with God. And through the work of the Holy Spirit, the love of God is poured out in our hearts. And over the the course of time, the Holy Spirit works in us in such a way that our love for God becomes greater than our love for these lesser things. Now, the question may arise, does that mean we're not to desire things, find pleasure in things of this world? Pleasure is not bad. God created pleasure. The Bible says God created all things richly for us to enjoy. Things like food, athletics, sports, whatever you like to do. Sex, these are things God created. God designed these things. But he designed them to be used in a way that is consistent with his holy love for us. There's an interesting little book that was written by C.S. Lewis years ago called The Screwtape Letters. I bet some of you have read that. Any of you read The Screwtape Letters? A lot of hands. It's such an interesting little book because it's a series of letters from Screwtape, who is a senior demon, to his nephew, Wormwood, who is a novice demon. Wormwood is just starting out, and he's been given charge of securing the ruin of the soul of a young man. And his uncle Screwtape, senior demon, is coaching him how to do it. So in his letters that he writes, he speaks of God as the enemy with a capital E. And you'll see on the screen a portion from one of his letters. Screwtape writes these words to Wormwood. Never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is his invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. Hence, we always try to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure to that that is least natural, least redolent of its maker. That, I think, means reminiscent of its maker. And least pleasurable. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. And that is indeed the way Satan works. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. And James is calling us to live with a holy desire that comes from finding our joy in the one who has jealous love for us. God's jealous love that was demonstrated by sending Jesus to save us calls us to live in the meekness of wisdom, in the joy of holy desire, and then finally in the grace that comes from humility. Again, James writes, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We may be thinking, how do we live this way? 
How do we live the way James is telling us to live? Well, the answer is right here. God always gives us the grace to do what he asks us to do. Uh, I think it was Augustine, sometimes called St. Augustine, that, that said God gives what he demands. In other words, God doesn't call you to do something he will not give you the grace to do. When God calls us to live a certain way, he gives us the enabling grace to live that way. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. God gives what he demands. He gives us the power to live as he calls us to live. Humble yourselves, he says, before the Lord, and he will exalt you. In giving this guidance to living the way that James is calling us to live, not loving the world, but loving God who loves us with a holy jealousy. He gives three imperatives. Submit to God, resist the devil, draw near to God. Submit to God because God gives his grace to the humble. If you and I say we can't possibly live the way scripture calls us to live, if you recognize your own weakness and inability to do what God calls you to do in your own strength, that's a good place to be because God only gives his grace to the humble. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Here James talks about the devil again because he knows the devil is a reality. The Christian's posture toward the devil should not be one of fear but of resistance, steadfast resistance. And finally, to continue to draw near to God. Because we will all, at times, stumble and fall. We know that we do. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. When you fall, don't turn from God. Turn to him. Turn back to him. God is a jealous God. His jealous love is for our good. It's a holy longing for the pure and full devotion of his people. That we don't follow idols. We don't love this world system, but we love him first and most. Because of his jealous love, he calls us to live in the meekness of wisdom in the joy of his holy desires and in the grace that he gives to the humble. Would you join me as we pray about that right now? Father, we thank you for your holy presence among us. I pray this morning for the power of the Holy Spirit to be at work here in our midst. Lord, we cannot, none of us can, live apart from love for this world, apart from the enabling grace of the Holy Spirit. Would you please help us? I pray, Father, for any marriages here that are in a state of crisis. I pray that you would bring the meekness of wisdom into the hearts involved and the grace that comes from humility before you. I pray for any family relationships that are strained, that you would turn the hearts of those involved to draw upon your grace and the meekness of your wisdom. And I pray for anyone here this morning who may have never truly placed his or her faith 
in Jesus and in the saving work that he accomplished on the cross. Would you bring that one to the awareness today, Lord, that becoming a Christian is not about good efforts, good deeds, good intentions, but about humbling ourselves before the mighty hand of God who has provided our salvation and transferring their faith, their trust to Jesus Christ alone as Savior. I'd invite you now to join me in the Lord's Prayer. You'll see it printed on the screen, I believe. Let's pray these words together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from